Hello, Superstructure listeners. This is Max. I wanted to introduce this episode with some exciting news. We are launching a Patreon membership drive, and we are doing so in order to build the capacity to expand the Money on the Left and Superstructure project. This includes the creation of a website, an academic journal, and a popular writing platform, as well as paying for the labor of our graphic designers, audio engineers, and other collaborators. The following episode will be our first premium offering made public for all to listen. It is a discussion of the hit Marvel film Avengers Infinity War between myself and Scott Ferguson of Money on the Left fame, which we recorded for his class on the Hollywood blockbuster. Part MMT, part critical film studies, part industrial and social analysis, this conversation is a taste of what you will see in the rest of his class, the entirety of which will be available for members of our Patreon. In the months to come, we are also planning some little goodies and offerings to members, as well as more exclusive content. We value all the support we've received thus far and are tremendously excited to keep expanding this MMT problem space with a wider and wider collective. Before we should get to the conversation, I will note that we are also offering hardship memberships should any of you be unable to afford to support our Patreon. We don't want anything to be behind a hard paywall and encourage you to get in touch with us if you feel that applies to you. With that, the link is in the description and enjoy the conversation. Thanks. Yeah, so um so we're talking about the Avengers, the Avengers Infinity War, right? So that's the penultimate uh of mm-hmm. the of the four Avengers series. Um you know, we've been skipping around quite a bit in our blockbuster course, um, but I've, I've been trying to kind of take snapshots of particular micro historical moments throughout the class. Uh, and, you know, we really, uh, well, we started with 2001 A Space Odyssey to talk about a, a film that was very influential to the blockbuster, but also was quite different. Um, and then we moved from Jaws to Star Wars um and 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 beyond and beyond and where we left off was the first matrix film in 1999 and you know we were taking on that kind of late uh clinton era uh, situating it in um a, a kind of high watermark moment of what we've been calling the neoliberal network society uh, a a world that we still very much inhabit although in a, a very different form defined by neoliberal ideology, a kind of market-forward, uh, market, all-consuming market society um, that kind of downgrades uh, the role of the state except for um, serving a market society um, and, uh, and a world that is defined by uh, digital technology, electronic networking, uh, a kind of fantasy of horizontal mediation, horizontal relationships, whether it's in business or in social life. Uh, we were trying to think about the way that the matrix is situated in that um, in that context, uh, and um, as we have been arguing in the class, 
the Matrix very much takes on that context, you know, in an allegorical way. And um, instead of actually affirming the what we're calling abstract mediation, the mediation at a distance uh, that um, these digital networking uh, technologies permit, instead the matrix involves us in a an immersive immediacy um, that is what we're calling hyper Newtonian. It's a kind of wild, uh, unhinged Newtonian physics uh, that our argument is that actually represses abstraction and it represses abstraction as a problem and as a problem, not just at the level of the plot, right? And the theme, but at the level of our sensorium, that our sensorium is not actually opened up to the, to the, to the questions and possibilities of digital abstraction, but instead this is a movie that's all about supposedly digital abstraction, but that is not at the same time obsessed with the immediacy of physics, even as it's really self-reflexively bending physics and playing with physics, it can't actually imagine or give us another sensory arrangement that is um, predicated on other terms and other terms that are abstract. So one of the things I want to do in our discussion is to think about, okay, you know, some 20 years later, <laughs> what's happened? <laughs> what's the, what is uh, what we're calling neoliberal network society like now? Um, and how is the Marvel Universe, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and how is Infinity War in particular uh, engaging? engaging these same questions and I, I you know I, I'll just you know <laughs> spell it out at the outset I uh, like all blockbusters uh, I don't think Mar Marvel cinematic uh, productions in any way break from in fact I think they up the ante on this repression of abstraction which has you know been the, the through line of our course but maybe yeah, maybe we can just kind of step back that was a lot of heady <laughs> intro but maybe we can step back and just talk about like what is this movie? What's the story? Who who's in it? What 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 happened before in the Avengers and the Marvel Cinematic Universe? So yeah, the the penultimate film in this sort of this iteration of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Avengers: Infinity War, um, really sort of fulfills this long buildup, right? This long sort of narrative buildup that. Uh, the Marvel Studios has set up with the sort of cultivation of all of these different superhero characters and then bringing them all together in one. And, um, you know, I mean, as Scott mentioned with the Infinity Stones, there has been this sort of dancing around these sort of hyper-localized points of power and, and um, one could even call them like figures for like certain types of digital uh, uh, malleability in in the whole sequence of, of this universe where now we've sort of had are having to confront the fact that Thanos, who is this hyper villain, right, this sort of cosmic level villain is um, really sort of playing his hand to try and acquire uh, all of these stones in order to kill half the universe and it what it sort of does is makes the 
sort of villainous tyranny of past films, a kind of a little bit of child's play. Um, Cause Thanos sort of transcends all, uh, all petty villainy in, <laughs> in this sort of grand cosmic moralized uh, narrative and con- and progress towards this sort of ultimate conquest to sort of kill half the universe and save the universe in his eyes. And so I think, perhaps that's the best way to get at the stakes of what infinity war sets up and sort of attempts to fulfill, uh, in, in its grandness. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's helpful. I mean, there's there's so many directions we can go in. I mean, one is to talk about, well, what are the infinity stones? Maybe fleshing out what you mean by, you know, uh, they, they figure a sense of, um, kind of control at, at, a, at a kind of hyper-localized, in a hyper-localized way. I mean, maybe we could talk about that. Just both like thinking thematically and doing interpretive work, but also just kind of laying out the plot too. Like what are the Infinity Stones? Yeah, so the Infinity Stones are sort of broken down um, by, I mean, you could almost even call them philosophical categories. And I think that's part of what I try and get at in, in my essay. But they're broken down into six essentially like elements of control over the world or the universe uh power space reality soul time and mind and so how are these are sort of structured within the plot is that different figures in the universe have sort of this domain over these aspects of control or that that sort of are are out there, right? There, there are just six ways and six components of the cosmic order that um, have been scattered all, all around, right? And Thanos is attempting to sort of hyper-localize them in this sort of one figure of himself. And he has uh, acquired the power stone already coming into this film. So that that is sort of his ultimate um, strength is that he is powerful like no one else. Um, and he's attempting to use that power in order to acquire uh, these different components from different figures, right? And so, for example, like the space stone uh, was sort of held in the Tesseract, right? And uh, Loki and, and Thor were sort of in, in have had domain over this stone at the beginning of the film. And that's just what sort of sets off um, the entire battle throughout the film is that with this space stone um thor and loki and and their sort of their people right uh could travel throughout the universe sort of at through these gates at a whim and we can talk more about potentially the the like the actual structure and logic of these gates Mm -hmm. but um so the acquisition of of that stone gives thanos the the power to just travel at a whim he doesn't need a ship right he can literally just snap his fingers and enter into a a sort of wormhole of sorts uh which you know thinking back to 2001 right there there are some resonances there um and sort of go anywhere in the universe um and you know that 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 quest leads him to the the acquisition of the reality stone which is held by uh this collector in nowhere and the reality stone allows thanos and whoever 
is in possession of it to manipulate the material world and material reality according to his whim. And so he can create spaces and and sort of trick people around what like phenomenologically into uh, like seeing movies. something that doesn't isn't there. Well, exactly, right? It's the power of the movies. Um, and like I think what we're getting at here is that the reason why I think I called it them localized points of digital malleability earlier is that these all end up being the power of editing, right? The power of the cinema. And um, so the film is sort of breaking down the cinema into components for its main villain to take over, right? Um, They're like software I, packages, but, but right. hard stones. Hard stones of software, right? These hyper-localized hard stones that are actually really in the fact and process of editing these hyper abstract structures of code and of course that leans backward into the matrix too um and so you know he we really then set up that you move to soul and mind and time right and i think it's soul time and then mind actually and you know he gets the soul stone from by sacrificing his daughter uh, a soul for a soul which gets thematized a lot this sense of a sort of right not abstract not in really actually infinite but this actual material exchange of one soul for another this sacrifice and um you know depending on how familiar the listens the listeners are with uh sort of tax tax money and and this very idea and how mmt is sort of broken with this sort of very particular like materialized conception of exchange and 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 government spending we can sort of allegorize this a soul for a soul onto this sort of blockbuster conception of 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 cost and of tax money and you you need to balance your books and we need to kill one person to get this soul stone to have power over the soul um and that moves to the time stone, which is held by Doctor Strange, who is this sort of monkish figure, right? Who has domain over all of time um, and and can see into the future and into the past and and has this power that he, he doesn't end up really using in the film or really in Endgame. But aside from Endgame, doesn't, there's not really, a, there's this sense of, of not wanting to disturb this sort of temporal unity that is constructed by the cinema. Um, and, and it's very fragile and contingent, right? right. And it's a, it, a series of, of hyper-immediate forking paths. And if you disturb yes. one, everything gets screwed up. Yeah. And there's this, yeah, I mean, there's this sense of almost like this, um, if you start thinking with these forking paths, it's like too much, right? It's this overwhelming kind of almost schizophrenic mode. Um, and... And that leads to the Mind Stone, which is really, uh, you know, held in Vision's head is just AI, right? Um, <laughs> it's essentially computing power, right? Crystallized, to, to use a loaded term. Yeah. Um, and and the sort of progression of acquisition of these stones gives Thanos the power to kill, right? I mean, the power to do anything. But ultimately, what he wants to do is randomly kill half the universe in order to save the environment and to save ecologies uh, across the universe from overpopulation. And this, of course, speaks to a very common 
theme in ecological discourse around questions of of how to move forward in a way that accounts for the need to be more sustainable um but at the same time balancing human needs and human flourishing with those needs and thanos's answer is what i've deemed in my my essay the the eco-fascist answer it's the answer that simply says we need to kill in order to save our sense of the environment right this imagination that we have of an ecology that is outside of us and yet we are one could even call them invaders right in this ecology which you know is a is a loaded term that i think speaks to this uh sort of conflict war uh narrative that is being played out not just in this film but in the entire marvel cinematic universe yeah and i want us to move toward talking about your argument about this this eco-fascist story and this eco-fascist villain and the way that the film constructs this villain and the complicated and ambivalent relationship that's created to this villain Um, but before we do i kind of um i want to just stop and talk a little bit more about these infinity stones Mm -hmm. and and kind of their origin story and the logic uh, around them we've already been been criticizing um their their logics right because they're they're so hyper finite there's only one of each right um and right unlike if they are figures for you know the powers of mediation and the powers of digital effects or digital cinema uh and they could you know reading allegorically you can read them in any number of ways but if you read them that way right it's it's almost like it's ridiculous because it sort of presumes like you know there's only one right oh there's only one uh adobe editing suite right whoever has it you know (laughs) has all the power right and this is absolutely ridiculous um but uh so you brought up political economy and you brought up the way or you you're you're flagging the fact that another major part of this course is thinking about the blockbuster from the point of view of heterodox economics as Mm -hmm. opposed to normative uh orthodox uh economic uh economics and also uh what often gets mobilized in the humanities a kind of marxist or marxish uh kind of political economy um and and specifically taking on modern monetary theory and nnt's particular understanding of how money works that it's not about direct interpersonal barter-like exchanges that kind of aggregate up into a giant kind of physics of exchange right mm-hmm. um and you know, we've said again and again that these what these blockbusters do is yes they represent money at the level of their diegesis at the level of the story world and their themes uh, and in fact most of the time they have a lot of nasty things to say about money money is always an anxious nervous medium um that you know it's just bad and nobody likes and everybody is joking joking about and moralizing against but at the level of just the sensory arrangements of these films in a way you could say there's an analogy or a homology between the direct the direct and immediate exchanging of physics that happens Mm -hmm. even in a fight right that's kind of akin to that barter like relationship um that 
that um, that you know we're arguing in this course that those that kind of punishingly finite and private orthodox model that that Marxism doesn't challenge at all. It just criti- it just whines about it. Just, just critiques um, <laughs> is is naturalized or the Marxist term is reifies um, right through these these blockbuster aesthetics. Okay, so that recap <laughs> um, um, said. I want to think about these infinity stones because they're very much a kind of you know enlightenment John Locke. Um, uh, they imply an enlightenment John Lockean view of the universe, right? So um, Locke will basically say that like we just live as individuals, you know, and then maybe we come together to form a society, but maybe we don't, uh, uh, which we would critique for you know basically suggesting that you know human beings aren't interdependent and that they don't need political structures to begin with they don't choose political structures they might choose to have different kinds of political structures but they don't choose to have one or not have one mm-hmm. and then the other important thing about uh, an enlightenment locky and understanding of money and production and distribution is that it starts with this idea of this kind of freely open commons right it's just nature it's just the universe it's just there, and it's just there for the taking. And you can just take stuff from it and use it. And you might, what Locke says is you might mix your labor with it. Like, you might, you might, you know, pick some apples and sweat a little bit. But if you pick the apples, it's immediately there for you, right? Again, this is like rejection of politics or rejection of abstract relations at a distance or media. Instead, it's just directly picking the apple. And I, I think the infinity stones are interesting. They're 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 like little apples. <laughs> it, it's they appear at the Big Bang, right? They're just made, right? They're yeah, there by the, by the celestial entities, right? By the celestial entities, and they're just there for the plucking. Whoever gets there first mm-hmm. has a private right to them, mm-hmm. right? So there's this directness. In a in a what's called an enlightenment discourse, the state of nature, right? Literally here, the Big Bang, right? The first state of nature, yep. and then part of the rhetoric around this, the storytelling, is that it was a virginal universe, right? So, you know, untainted, pure forms of control and power that you can just pluck from the universe. Whereas a heterodox and MMT approach to political economy, and I would say just society and government and history would would say that, no, 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 you don't get infinity stones unless you have a giant political and productive infrastructure and apparatus to make these things. So if you go back to the allegory for, well, infinity stones are allegories for, you know, uh, uh, particle particle generating software um, that, that they will use, you know, to, to make the, the, all the fig, half the figures in the film dither away into nothingness right if if um if you have this software right that software takes years and years of research and development government funding private enterprise like so much stuff has to go into this stuff you don't just pluck a particle generator (laughs) out from the 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 virgin universe right and and even one better than that, too, the collector in the Guardians of the Galaxy actually calls them ingots, um, <laughs> right? And right. so there's there's this implication as well that 
these crystals are our money is the money form right in, yeah. in general so yeah absolutely so with that in mind i mean this is a thoroughly liberal and neoliberal vision of literally the cosmos right and mm -hmm. how we get stuff right um that we would want to critique so now let's let's talk about this eco-fascist narrative now you've called this uh in your essay um basically you you've said this you said this is surprisingly the first really big blockbuster eco-fascist villain that we've that we've had right so mm -hmm. maybe you can unpack that like why is it surprising and what is an eco-fascist villain yeah so i think um let's start with the second one right okay. um an eco-fascist villain like perhaps you can put them in sort of juxtaposition to what one would consider a more fascist villain right like we could talk about literally hitler right who has been in literal blockbusters before right or the many nazis that have been you know thinking of indiana jones um or we can think about star wars where darth vader right vader being close to fatah in german is wearing in their stormtroopers and this is another figuration of nazis right and nazism um there have been a lot of sort of constructions of fascist villains. I mean, we can even flip it and even call this sort of American Vietnam allegories of some components of Star Wars. Also a sort of fascist villain, right? And in, in, from this perspective. Right, America as fascism. America as yeah. fascism, right. But um, thinking back, there hasn't been a villain in some of these big blockbusters uh, that has been principally concerned with the protection of the environment um, in their in in their sort of moralized sense of duty as a villain, um, which I find sort of both surprising, but then also perhaps not as surprising for a reason that I'll explicate further. But I think it is surprising to me because if you actually look to the sort of structures of actual fascism in the world um, in the 20th century, there are really serious environmental and ecological components um, of the construction of German Nazism in the sense of protecting nature, right? And including the German people as sort of the protectors of nature um, and of the sort of blood and soil of, uh, of their vision of a sort of Germany, of this national project of Germany that then becomes internationalized. Um, so and it's so the, it's the health of the health of the environment and the health of the, the, the people, the, the folk. Right. And, right. you know, maybe not all students listening to this will know. But, you know, for example, um, Hitler himself, not only was he a vegetarian, mm -hmm. right, um, you know, he promoted healthy eating, but also, you know, a lot of Nazi science was kind of cutting edge in um, um, really digging into the harmful effects of cigarette smoking, right? And mm -hmm. and that was um, uh, really poo-pooed, right, under the Third Reich. Mm -hmm. And so there's this this sense of uh, Ger Germany being a sort of protectorate of nature, right? And sort of the natural ability for evolution and to take its course and produce the sort of perfect 
uh, you know, blonde Aryan being, right? And so it's important to like rehistoricize that and not think of Nazism simply as this sort of quest to exterminate or this quest for raw power, which is I think how perhaps some people think of it, right? There's this very protectorate kind of ideological through line. And it's paternal, uh, right? And that's important yes, for this exactly. film as well, right? It's it's intensely paternal. I'm mm-hmm. going to protect you as a father. Yes. I mean, yeah, I mean, there's a reason why in Star Wars, uh, it's the, the, the figure is the father, right? Yeah. And it's, it's precisely because of that. And, and it's this, I will protect you as a father, but I will also discipline you as a father. And I know what's best for you as my subject. And so um, that, that sense of fascism, I mean, on my reading has just been really under thematized in the sort of villainous projections of Nazism throughout American cinema, which I've, you know, thought and, and written and uh, about in the past. And so that is surprising to me because I think that there's some really rich narrative detail to be mined in in sort of that projection and so the omission of that i i you know when i when i saw affinity war for the first time i was it it was interesting to me because it seemed to fill a gap in its sort of this sort of cinematic projection of villainy that was so sort of ripe to be filled and so i found that really sort of interesting because not only for the relationships of sort of desire and around environmentalism that one would say that like a good like liberal or neoliberal viewer would have coming into the to the theater to watch Infinity War and so it, there's a challenge there too but also because of then rereading the history as this sort of gap that then Infinity War fills and so right so we can dig in now I think to what ecofascism like really speaks to and and why um why what thanos is sort of guiding moralistic uh duties he imagines them to be right and so we start with as scott was suggesting this sort of flat sort of imminent which i will define in a moment world where the stones or the apples are there for the taking for for human individuals to uh, mix their labor with these sort of singular singularities or individuated things in the world. And the reason why I use the word imminent, which is a sort of central conceptual uh, component of this essay, is imminent, right, dictionary definition-wise, is sort of implies this sort of sense of inhering within, right? So the apple exists within this material world, right? It, it, it was created by God in the, or, or how, whoever you want to say, by the universe, by the Big Bang. But now it is sort of a fallen apple, right? Within the world in which we all materially exchange and operate and come into contiguous contact with each other. There's not this sense of this sort of, one could even call it like a creative hand uh, manipulating this world that is outside of the world. Um, it, it is it is simply this sort of autonomous material landscape where we come into connection. Um, there, 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 there's this sense of it, we are in this material world sort of alone with ourselves. Um, and so 
in this fallen, imminent, finite material world, we are left with nature, right? With finite resources around us. I could even be paraphrasing the Thanos' monologue about <laughs> his his duties, right? Um, and and our, and there's this sense of this finitude that is at the core, right? This imminent finitude, right? There's not enough apples to go around. There's simply, in Thanos' vision, as we've reached this sort of high we could even call it high modern, right? If we're thinking in, in our world or in the film world, we've reached this sort of cosmic, sort of modern cosmic technological uh, world, universe, in which everything's connected. We have this sense of neoliberal connection and everything is sort of being used up by these by species, which we could allegorize as human, but also then alien species as well. So there's this flattening that's going on there. And so his solution is not to take what perhaps, you know, Scott and I would say are relatively finite resources, not inherently finite, right? You can grow more apples um, if we want to decide, if we, yeah. if we plan <laughs> and we use like society and governance and money yeah. to sort of plan and create and set out a temporal horizon for what we want to produce right uh to a, and so that we can make sure everyone is fed um and these sorts of things um but what he imagines like as this finite universe that's being used up by people and so what he how he wants to solve what he's reified as a premise of this sort of finite imminent material contiguous universe without these sort of mediating layers of abstraction and governance and money. Um, his solution is to kill half the universe, right? Because of that finitude, he wants to exact a cost onto humanity to bring us back into balance, right? Into sort of an optimal material relationship of use with this flat world that is just a nature for the taking because he wants nature to flourish right he wants the the universe to go on and to flourish but what that means is we someone has to pay a price right you need that tax money from somewhere if we're gonna have nice things right if we're gonna <laughs> if we're gonna be able to build that community garden sorry we have to you have to pay with your life um and in this sort of logic he it becomes less about his pursuit of power or self-interest and more this as scott was saying this paternal protectorate mode of i am doing this for you because i care about you um because i care about the world and that's why he he decides to do this at random um because he it doesn't want to be unfair he wants fairness right he doesn't want to exact punishment for its own sake he really wants to create a world in which our material finitude our contiguous exchanges can be sustainable and why i think i found this so interesting as a sort of eco-fascist imaginary is because it really speaks to what liberal the liberal money mode actually wants right it wants this balance this moralized we can all take care of each other if we all pay our fair share mode. And that's sort of like, you know, this sense of like, if we recycle, if we 
If we if have we secondary sure, markets and tax uh, right. carbon credits. If yeah. we have carbon credits and carbon tax and It'll all this sort of... It'll balance out. Balance out our use, then we can really have a sort of sustainable world that accounts for, you know, the problems of overconsumption of technology and the problems of our existence as human beings using in the world. And basically what the film does is it accepts that premise of that liberal money, liberalized, moralized premise and says, that's never going to solve the problem, right? Climate change will never be solved by recycling or carbon credits, which is true, right? But then because it accepts the premise of that liberal like austerity, right? And that liberal individuated sort of paternalism, it then accelerates it and says, the only way under these terms to solve this problem is to kill, is to liquidate, is to eliminate the, the use at its point, at, at the point of its cause, which is the collective existence, existence of, of individuals. Of two times the amount of pe- creatures in the universe. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, we can think of half, like we're going to kill half the universe as sort of arbitrary. The point is, yeah. is that you need population control. And this is not just a a right-wing idea, right? I mean, this has throughout sort of ecological movements and discourses, we have seen uh, throughout the 20th century lefties sort of tilt in this direction, right? Population explosion rhetoric. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And and like, um, and we like, in order to really allow nature to continue to existing, like we need to sacrifice. And that means... That means, you know, doing what China did and only allowing one child per family. And that means... Sacrificing your daughter, Gamora. Right. That means sacrificing your daughter, Gamora. And, and, you know, I mean, there are some really, like, dark allegorical resonances to to the sort of forced abortions in in places like China where, uh, where people would, you know, want to have a son to sort of continue their family line. And so if it was going to be... If their baby was gonna be mm-hmm. born, you know, as a as a cis girl, then um, then they would they would have an abortion, and 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 in order to try again to try and get a boy, and so there there are deep resonances in the world today with this sort of paternalistic, ecofascist sort of ideological mode. And that is why I think, you know, to speak about sort of at least my desire for this film, which I think is part and parcel of what the, the blockbuster in this course kind of is, is there's a reason why I was drawn to it. And it's because it really speaks to the sort of conflict and contradiction at the core of what the blockbuster itself as a cinematic form is indebted to. And it's sort of playing out those contradictions in, in at least in my sense at this sort of grand cosmic scale, unlike any other blockbuster that came before it. Yeah, yeah, agreed. It's fascinating. One one thing I want to say before we kind of deepen that discussion is, I, I will say, I think that on the one hand, I agree with you that it half is almost arbitrary and it doesn't matter right and then when when thing when it basically doesn't work and we we moved toward end game and then he's just like let's just get rid of life and as such right. right and so it's like oh yeah it really didn't matter 
you know, the problem is actually just living metabolic creatures, you know, that we would all just be better if we were all dead, right? We were all Mm -hmm. just inanimate, right? But um, on the other hand, the half does matter, I think, and it gets played out in the the allegory, the physical allegory, the very hyper-Newtonian allegory of that double-sided knife, mm-hmm. right? That Thanos is is balancing on his fingertip ever so gently in a paternalistic way, teaching a young Gamora, who he is at once stealing and saving, um, to do it herself. And right, in order to create balance, whether it's in nature or a market or or in a family, <laughs> Right, you have to get the halfway point right. You have to feel physically feel, stretch out with your feelings, as mm-hmm. they'd say in Star Wars, that halfway point. Right. Uh, so the half does seem. It, it seems significant in that way, mm-hmm. um, but but moving on to deepen where you were already going, I'd like us to talk about um, in your in this version of your essay, you really focus on. Thanos, um, but I, I want to kind of step back and ask about, okay, so, you know, there's all kinds of values and tensions and contra- contradictions articulated in any cultural or aesthetic artifact, and the blockbuster is no exception, and certainly uh, the Marvel Universe and Infinity War are not exceptions either, and usually there's sort of manifest readings, and then latent readings latent meanings and then there's kind of unconscious meanings and and there's sort of um desires and impulses that are being let's say stirred up but then also controlled and managed and kept at bay so i want us to try to unpack together what is the film's relationship to this eco-fascist plot this Mm. eco-fascist villain Uh, And I guess I'll just start by saying, you know, he's the villain. So he is, at least manifestly speaking, bad, right? Mm -hmm. We're we're not supposed to affirm, at least at the surface, we're not supposed to affirm what the bad guy says, right? He, he, He is the bad guy. He is associated with bad things. So everything you've said thus far about his logics of eco-fascist uh sacrifice and this extremely zero-sum soul for a soul exchange type thinking that's not that's not supposed to be you know that's not the thing that tony stark is all about that's not mm-hmm. what vision is all about that's not what gamora is all about right uh, and in fact gamora her part of her narrative is to like learn that that sucks right so the film has us on the side of you know, morally wagging our finger at Thanos, right? So what I what I want to do, and maybe just to put it in the way that I always do back in my, you know, my intro to film and media studies courses, like what is the film affirming? What is it critiquing? And then what else is going on underneath, essentially? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, this is a really interesting, and I, in my view, like a complicated question because... I think we also have to take into account that this is not one film either, right? Right. So there's a sort of complex sort of construction of affirmations and negations um, or critiques that are that are sort of built 
into the the construction of Thanos as a as a villain who were again meant to wag our finger at. But um, one way I think I want to sort of get at the way that the film is actually affirming Thanos, which I think would be my contention at the level of its logics, which we've sort of explicated a little bit with the sense of balance and the sense of physics and all of the ways in which the aesthetics are actually playing out this sort of uh, ground of material contiguity. Um, Yeah, and actually, let me just insert one thing, which is just a general point that I think is intuitive to any anybody who has a relationship with Hollywood cinema and certainly the blockbuster, which is that villains are sexy, right? They're not just bad, right? And villains often um, bring up impulses and values that we sort of at a manifest level might repress and want to negate, right? Um, But but give a kind of... uh, (laughs) a kind of seductive performance of those values that the mm-hmm. film will then try to manage, right? So, um, you know, like, in in some of the other Avengers movies, for example, you know, you have, in the first Avengers, um, who's the bad guy in the first Avengers? Oh, Loki, mm-hmm. right? So Loki's whole thing is, you know, humans say they want freedom, but they actually want to submit, Right, and he tries to get everybody to submit to him, right? But there's something fascinating about Loki, and there are scenes in which people do submit, right? And so, so, so let's take this to Thanos himself, right? The, mm-hmm. the there's something seductive, even though we're trying to ultimately negate it and keep it at bay. Yeah, yeah, right. So you want to, as as a sort of film logic, you want to sort of give the villain his best airing, his most interesting, right, seductive airing as a villain, only then to demonstrate how such villainy can't actually succeed, right? Um, but, But I think there's something a little bit different, and I think it's a part of the composition of the narrative structure of this multi-film universe, because at the level of Infinity War, right, there, there isn't actually, Thanos doesn't lose, right? He wins. He doesn't, he's not pushed back. There's an inevitability about his victory. Um, which, he, which he says, and, and everybody's speaking to, uh, right. like the destiny of this. His, right, this sort of historical destiny, which is, yeah me quoting from my own paper about this, right? Um, And so I think there's something a little bit different about the way, as a penultimate film, um, Infinity War doesn't actually, can't even lever a critique of Thanos' logics, right? They only can just try to stop it sort of wantonly. And I think there's a real... um, like phenomenological or spectatorial sort of affirmation being posited here. You come to the the movies to watch your side lose. Um, And I think, you know, I I think that really does provide this sense, right? And and don't forget, you've gone to the movies and then you have to wait a year 
Um, and I remember coming out of the theaters sort of thinking like, that was really interesting to like leave the theater and have lost and to have enjoyed it. And to then also think at the back of my hand, like, okay, like I also know that they're just going to undo this, but that sort of end game reversal we can talk about the particular logics of how, of what it affirms in its defeat of Thanos. And I think that also speaks to uh, the actual non-defeat of Thanos on, on my uh, reading. Um, but I, I want to just make clear how the actual phenomenological relationship and of, of viewing this film really isn't that of, well, huh, Thanos was a bad guy, but we got him. Right. It it's really Thanos did it like he defeated the Avengers. I've seen 15 films before this and not one ended on this sort of somber, almost like um, like kind of beautiful, somber note. Um, and so I do think there's an upping of the ante here with regards to the way it portrays its villainy as, a, as in a sort of anti-hero way. Um, and so I, I want to note that difference. But then I think it's sort of clear as we move into Endgame that the film is trying to reaffirm the Avengers, right? And give the Avengers one last shot um, to defeat Thanos, which they ultimately do. But again, not without a cost. And I think that's this is the key component, right? The... Tony Stark dies at the end. Um, you know, Gamora is dead before the end. Um, and there, the, the sequence with Black Widow um, as well, and the need for someone to die uh, yet again in order to re-attain power over these soul stones. All of these logically speaking and at the level of aesthetics and the falling and the and the impacts only reaffirm Thanos's logics right they they only just speak to the fact that in the wake of Thanos there is no alternative right we just have to we have to sacrifice what we have to sacrifice in order to defeat him in the things that he sacrificed and so it becomes this game of sort of self-flagellation in which we have to out-sacrifice him. We have to out-punish ourselves and out-destroy ourselves and what we love. Ultimately, this whole universe, right, this whole blockbuster experience has to come to an end if we're to defeat the logics that are at its core. And so this is why I say, you know, sure, he's the villain, but really... He wins because there is no Marvel Cinematic Universe really to speak of in the at the scale and with the sort of, you know, whether political, economically, like how much revenue these movies have taken in um, going into COVID. Right. The, the spectatorial experience of the cinema has sort of fallen away in that way. So there's this real sense of the end game that's being affirmed here. And so Thanos actually did win. Right. The MCU is gone and hopefully all of its little critters and, you know, all those little 
flowers in in its sort of editing softwares are sort of lying <laughs> on their own untainted by the sort of impacts of the fights in which they provided the ground for so that's maybe a bit of a a metaphorical way to say it but that's sort of how i'm thinking of what it's affirming yeah and i'll say i think at the most the kind of to come back to the most manifest level in terms of what the film is offering a american slash global pax americana audience um neoliberal audience is um instead of the eco-fascist destructive protection of thanos we're given a kind of neoliberal democratic impulse which takes us right back to john locke Mm -hmm. and the enlightenment right it's um it's different because it's neoliberal but the 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 enlightenment liberal part is the idea that you know um social organizations are essentially like voluntary coalescing of individuals or smaller groups like families or kinship uh relationships right and um this is the constant preoccupation of the avengers it's like are we together or are we not did we break up are we like the beatles are we back again (laughs) um you know at one point in uh in infinity war um tony stark says something like we must coalesce or else you know we're done for whatever i mean we have to form a social contract yeah we have to form a social contract right so this is this instead of the strictly hierarchical fascist eco-fascism of thanos and his you know uh henchmen and henchmen and women and you know i mean and they're all in order in very fascistic ways we have this kind of messy democratic uh conflict laden contradictory problem of coalescing can we come together Mm -hmm. can we you know, put our differences minimally aside while also being bitchy and snarky along the way and having, like, you know, internal fight sequences where, you know, the the Avengers are fighting the Guardians of the Galaxy and, we, you know, neither of them know what the hell they're doing, but they have a common enemy. All of this stuff is, I think, affirming this kind of demo- messy democratic impulse, right? I think it's neoliberal in the sense that, you know, this is, if, if so much of this revolves around Tony Stark, who is a kind of, you know, he's in New York, but it's like, he's like a Silicon Valley playboy tech investor wizard, right? Self-made man kind of figure, right? And the Avengers are a kind of, you know, quasi-governmental organization, Right, that well, some you know, sometimes they're working with and for Shield, but sometimes they're not, and you know, essentially this is like you called it in a, a previous conversation with me, like private UN, right? <laughs> yeah. Um. So it's neoliberal in that way. It sort of imagines that like the 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 center of action and mediation and sociality and causality is essentially like private actors coalescing, mm-hmm. um, and I think that kind of neoliberal democratic impulse is what is being overtly affirmed and kind of worked out like gosh isn't neoliberal democracy hard 
but it's worth it, right? Um, and you know, sometimes we have casualties, right? And they talk, they thematize this. We have casualties, and we we need to have, we need there to be less casualties. But what happens in Infinity War, against the back pressure of Thanos's eco-fascist zero-sum logics, which, as you say, we can't actually there is no response to. It's not. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a point where I can't remember one of the characters is like, I think you're wrong. I mean, that that's not what the line is, but the, there's yeah. a, a sentiment like that. You're wrong or you must be. How can you know? Right. Which is. Yeah. Yeah. For it the becomes audience, a, an epistemological critique. It's like you can't know. It's yeah. Gamora, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. Gamora is like, you can't know. But it's also like, but can you? And maybe right. you do. <laughs> right? Well, OK. The science is in. You yeah, OK. Sun- we know. We know. And okay, right. so now we have to kill everyone because that's, right. that's the logical conclusion. And then I think where the manifest thematic affirmation of this messy neoliberal democratic problem and impulse kind of kisses the, the underlying eco-fascist imaginary that, that is not being questioned is precisely the, the kind of acceptance at the level of the narrative, the characters, but also at the level of the, the the physics of the film that yeah as you were saying there's always going to be collateral damage there's always going to have to be sacrifice and i think what the film is ultimately trying to say at least you know the kind of in a way that that takes seriously its management of its themes even though i think you're right to say that Ultimately, the, the film is Thanos, right? The film yeah. is ultimately affirming Thanos. But I think that there is there is a place for a spectator to, to try to take away the very, the very unstable conclusion that, well, at least, even in this zero-sum neoliberal world, at least the democratic impulse sacrifices when it is physically necessary and totally contingent mm. and what's awful Thanos may be right at the level of like metaphysics of like the structure yep. of the universe and the problem at hand but he are he arbitrarily decides yeah and even if he tries to be neutral about it he is he's kind of preemptively destroying more than needs to be destroyed yeah in a way that, well, blockbuster physics give us an excuse that, well, it's just gravity. It's just, it's just, the, it's just physical necessity rather than kind of jumping the gun on physical necessity and trying to clean it up ahead of time. And and what's interesting about that is that you see this in sort of like we can think about this conception of like mother nature, right? So like if we have like a really awful hurricane somewhere that like kills a few thousand people, there is this sense, I think, like at least in sort of a political discourse that like this is awful and we should definitely do something, what we can to mitigate these sorts of things. But this was, this was nature, this was gravity, right? you know we we it sucks but it's random and these are these victims are the victims that we pay for sort of existing in this world and so rather than say like the thanos sort of tick which would be 
we need to kill half the world so that hurricanes aren't as bad, right? There's this just acknowledgement of, well, okay, hurricanes are going to be bad, but we can't really do anything about that. We can't actually build sustainable infrastructure because that would require all this effort and we don't have the money for it. And so a few thousand people die here and there. A few hundred thousand people die because of a pandemic. You know, it is what it is. This is nature taking its course. And we're going to try and do everything we can to try and mitigate this disaster. But inevitably, it is going to be what it's going to be, right? Rather than taking a sort of proactive productive more mmt line which is to say we can actively create safe spaces for our citizens so that as climate change sort of affects us we can mitigate both it right and the amount of unsustainable practices that go on but also protect people from the increasing danger of hurricanes or floods or whatever we can invest in maintaining and building up the infrastructure of the levees in new orleans yep um and you know i mean i I don't i don't think this is any secret but it 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 doesn't it this contrasts or this this belies the kind of physics naturalistic um rhetoric um that we get in our politics right that it wasn't actually Hurricane Katrina that that mm-hmm. destroyed New Orleans, right? It, the the hurricane came in and went. People went about their day. They're like, "Whew, we, we we got out of that." But the 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 catastrophe was that infrastructure spending did not keep up to make sure that those levees were up to snuff, and because of that ongoing maintenance for which you need abstract money and you know digital communications and, and creative all... creative thinking right yeah right um out certainly algorithms uh, of another kind yeah um they they were not um they were not where they needed to be and that's what created the catastrophe and that whether it's the pandemic which i want us to talk about more in a little bit mm-hmm. or it's katrina uh, or anything else that's that's what's being, I think, repressed and naturalized by this eco-fascist narrative and its, its, you know, kind of democ- neoliberal democratic impulse that, it, that, you know, you might say that the, the two options in the film are neoliberal democracy or eco-fascism, but in truth, those aren't the only options and they're kind of just two sides of the same coin. And, and this becomes so like obvious when you ask yourself the question, okay, Thanos is what the, th- the problem Thanos was trying to solve at the end of Endgame, is that problem solved? No, right? There's, there's no solution to the problem of unsustainable environmental practice, right? Uh, because there's no answer that liberalism can offer to the posing of this problem. And, and, and so what you get is a nostalgic reversion to democratic, a democratic heyday of the mid-century Americana. Right, this um, is in the, in the final film. In the, right, in the final film, in, in yeah. Endgame. Um, and so th- that's why I would say that there, it's not even that the film is actively affirming Thanos. The film just has no answer to the villain that it is set up. And I think, yeah. right, saying nothing is, is, is sort of a 
equivalent in a lot of ways to sort of aiding and abetting the active acceleration of the logics that you set out as the ones that you claim to be critiquing. Yeah, absolutely. And it's conspicuously absent, too, because, you know, we we get to know uh, Tony's new nanotech suit, right? Like, mm-hmm. he's innovating, right? And I believe, isn't it in one of the first Avengers, isn't part of the plot, isn't the whole thing about the Tesseract, like, endless energy, you know, like, yep. uh, to save the to save the ecosystem? Yep. Like, all that sort of... It's not like, well, once we get that stone back, <laughs> we'll be yeah. able to deal with climate change. You know, there's an, all that goes out the window. And it, it's this kind of mute, impotent, ni- solemn, yeah, solemn liberalism or, yeah. or neoliberal liberalism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think now might be a good time to kind of step back and um, just talk a little bit about um, historical context, which is, you know, in this class so far, I've been going back to times that were, you know, different from the one we're in now. And we, you know, we talked about the, the heyday of Clinton neoliberalism and uh, the passage of, you know, the 1996 Telecommunications Act, which really privatized uh, media and communications and, and made way for the explosion of a, of a, of a, a commercialized for-profit uh, Web 2.0 and things like that. We talked about his... Uh, Republican talking points and his balanced budget uh, um, uh, impulses that led to uh, budget surpluses, which created all you know, were, were praised right as the best thing ever, but actually created all of these instabilities that led to not just the dot com bubble bursting, but also large systemic problems that that made kind of the source of liquidity go into the into the housing market, uh, and that leading to essentially the great financial crisis uh, around the housing bubble in 2007-2008. So what I want to do is, yeah, basically try to talk about like our, the, the, the contemporary, and by contemporary I mean just sort of like the last 10 years, mm-hmm. of the, the context in which this film is released. And this is honestly one of my favorite parts of that about this course. Um, you know... It's one thing to kind of talk about the blockbuster in general as a as a as a aesthetic logic, as an economic logic, and I think all that is important. But it's also just kind of I mean, both important and just sort of riveting and fun to like take on these micro moments of history and you know really think about what is the Matrix doing for Clinton era you know neoliberalism. Uh, yeah, so yeah. you know, so we could maybe start. We could say you have. The housing crisis, right? Mm-hmm. You have the great financial crisis, um, um, and then you have left-wing and right-wing responses to that, right? So you have the Tea Party, right, responding mm-hmm. to the the bailout of the big banks uh, and not the people, but from a right-wing reactionary point of view. Um, then you have eventually the the explosion of uh, Occupy Wall Street, and mm-hmm. I would argue a a new generation, uh, both like actual people, like young people, but also a revived generation for people who were older, who you know had participated in left politics in the past, uh, of really like a new strong progressive and left politics in the United States. 
the likes of which we really haven't seen since the 1970s and late 60s and before that we hadn't really seen um, since uh, the 30s and early 40s uh, so this moment is is marked by like you know economic crisis that could have of course been prevented and was created largely by government uh, mediation and policy um, and and then this yeah this these very different kinds of more radicalized responses to it so I would say that that's that's one uh, thing that we have to do and of course you know infinity war is sort of at the other end of a yeah. kind of decade of this so get us toward the infinity war yeah so the you know as you're talking i think there's actually a pretty kind of direct way in which we can allegorize the mcu the marvel cinematic universe a sort of along the terms of those 10 years which is to say like thinking with sort of the more early stages of uh the mcu and the sort of rise of obama and um and then the Tea Party, um, we can think about the way, you know, Tony Stark's sort of privatized but military sort of technological sort of heroics are really right in line with sort of the early Obama years, where which really emphasized sort of spending on public-private partnerships. Yeah, and the, um, the, the left podcast, Chapo, trap house that maybe some students might be familiar with i think has, make, likes to make this point a lot that essentially yeah. iron man is like obama iron man is obama and like there's this sort of hero complex going on um but i also think importantly um that perhaps what the the likes of chapo miss is the fact that economically speaking the reason why that the reason why we get the rise of the Tea Party is because of this failure of imagination of getting outside of these gravitropic physics, um, whether it's and, on behalf and zero of the Obama sum logics. and zero sum logics, whether it's on behalf of the Obama administration, um, who, you know, even in their stimulus packages or in the, the deals, they didn't want to go too far because they didn't want to outstretch the debt. They didn't want to. Uh, hang us over the edge of a fiscal cliff, right? Like physics. physics is all these physics metaphors and all of these sort of, I mean, this real deep uh, affirmation of this sort of zero sum contiguous imagination of what money and, and public spending entails. And so in that way, I think the early days of the MCU provide a sort of in a sort of a sort of false consciousness or a false vision of what this sort of public private partnership can uh, can sort of cultivate right we 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 imagine these great technological elon musks of the world can create these sort of structures of political economy and cons and can and integrate with neoliberal consumers to create this sort of perfect market driven world of innovation yeah, that can bring us all up right and and sort of enliven all of us into this sort of symmetrical balanced um world in which we all become little uh sort of bootstrap driven uh, entrepreneurs entrepreneurial selves right <laughs> and so this is sort of what what is driving um this sort of Obama early days of the MCU and this sort of Tony Stark mold. But then 
what do we see happen? We see we see villains pop up, right? And um and there's this sense of like, well, perhaps this is not all that it was cut out to be. But you know what? We keep striving and we keep winning and we can keep bringing coalitions together to do this and defeat these villains. And defeat these um, fascist villains. And right? defeat these fascist villains. That's exactly right. Um, there's a creeping fascism. Now, on the other hand, there's a creeping fascism in the entire history of the blockbuster. Right. Starting from 77. But So I don't want to blow that out of proportion, but it is a creeping fascism. Right. Yeah. But there's this... Es- right. It's just sort of an accelerating fascism, right? It's not just one villain in one movie that gets defeated, right? Or one villain in a set of movies. It becomes this sort of overlapping sort of snake's head of villains, right? Multiple snakes, like heads of villains that you chop off one and another one, a bigger one pops up, right? And we sort of keep moving and deeper into this fight until... That's a kind of, um, a a kind of hybrid of the classical paternal, um, like, fascistic villain with a war on terror yes villain right the war yes. on terror where there's no head it's not a state so it's it's everywhere it multiplies yep. and you cut you cut off you know you assassinate one head over here and another one pops up over there yeah literally with a drone strike right i mean it's literally like tony stark's tech um right and so and then i mean ultimately what we re- what is revealed is that thanos is sort of the center of all of this so we found this this one very this particular villain that is responsible for all of this death and destruction and i mean you know i think one one could be rather reductive and say this is sort of just trump in a way right <laughs> but but of course it's not it's it's way more than that too um it's it's trump but also like all of the villains that trump assumes right it's trump it's china it's Mexico. It's the whole structure of a world order of villainy, all localized and concentrated in this one particular, you know, person, this one father who is going to he's going to take care of us. But also he's he's trying to kill us. Um, and so there's this sort of complicated, overlapping sort of false stories associated with the sort of lead up to Infinity War, including, as you said, the war on terror, Hillary Clinton's loss um, of the election, and then the failures of the Obama political economy of physics, uh, the failure of the blockbuster, so to sort of bring us together and galvanize us phenomenologically against the sort of one true villain. Um, the But also this sort of, but paradoxically at the same time, this sort of, wild success of the blockbuster um and and of the sort of public private partnership of hollywood and of disney Um, right right and i want to talk about that a little bit i mean one of the readings i gave uh the students uh for this week uh, was trying to map out the 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 kind of um rise and fall and rise and fall and then rise again of the um of, of marvel right so marvel had been hurting and hurting really badly and they they kept trying to kind of franchise out their properties and um, they were making deals with studios and, uh, you know, only to middling success. And when there were success stories, 
Um, their contracts were so bad that you know they were barely making any money, uh, and they you know were about to file for bankruptcy at one point, and then um, they made a deal, right? And they made a deal, and we we talked about this um, during the the Matrix lecture and mm-hmm. the, the structure of finance, neoliberal finance. Um, they made a deal with a multinational financial corporation, a bank, right? Um, Merrill Lynch. And um, Merrill Lynch gave them some, whatever it was, 500 million something dollars over so many years, like eight years. Um, And uh, it allowed them, uh, oh, and it was made possible because one of the execs who used to work at Marvel went and got a job at Merrill Lynch. So Merrill, they had an insider there and they were able to get a meeting through there. So all of this is, you know, abstract communication, networking, you know, not mm-hmm. physics. Um, and and it was the private neoliberal outlay of multi, a multinational capitalist financial firm that in the midst of ongoing despair and crisis because of Obama physics gives rise to this massive, you know, like <laughs> this massive media project that yeah. that had to be planned, right? It's, it, these are not one-off movies. This is an elaborate architecture. I mean, I I think we were joking the other day calling this something like you know, like the Marvel New Deal or something, right? Yeah, like yeah. The, the neoliberal Marvel New Deal. It's like no, if you're gonna, you know, well, okay, well maybe we're not fixing the levees and all the interlocking infrastructures in New Orleans, but what we are doing is we're creating this massive infrastructure of all these different films and directors and writers and you know uh, um, VFX workers and actors and you know location scouts etc 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 I mean this is a massive outlay and, and you know rather than just kind of moralizing against it and saying like look at this you know, private for-profit enterprise and how neoliberal it is, it, it also is evidence that actually we could afford it, right? As, mm-hmm. a, as a society, we, we could afford. We could have afforded to do big things. And we did big things. And you, the Marvel Universe, the Marvel Cinematic Universe is one of those big things. But because it, the, whole, the whole world that mediates the Marvel Universe is so structured by scarcity... And by austerity, even though it is a massive rejection of austerity, it can't itself help but just perpetuate those logics of austerity, both at the level of its aesthetics and its physics and phenomenology and in this totally perverse way at the level of its own, you know, narrative and, and, and logics of ecofascism. And and I think one thing I want to, like, say, which I take, you know, really uh what i really love about you know your work on the blockbuster scott is that also like what is being provisioned or created or planned in um us as spectators is a is a real sort of joyous phenomenological feeling right um it's albeit repressing all the other abstract components of society and how we don't have to settle for these things. But I walked out of Infinity War with and was really just smiling. It was an <laughs> awesome experience, right? And so 
it, it's, it's such a, a complicated one. right and it's a communal one and one that is really lacking right now for us in pandemic ridden america and um and so there's there's so many complicated overlapping components of this which all point to the solution to the plot of the films themselves right <laughs> the solution is is that if we want to solve the problem that there isn't a massive overlapping superhero experience um it's not that oh well today there's not one and so we have to like cut away from all these other films uh and steal all these writers and actors from rom-coms to <laughs> to build out one right no we have to plan to build one and we have to hire talent and create and train talent and and we have to find places in the world and we have to change the way buildings look and we have to do all of these things in order to create this experience we and and that is the solution to the film's own problem right of how do we solve this ecological problem which in a way it itself is doing but won't even admit it right And, and 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 won't admit it to all of our peril I think I want to I want to work our way to to kind of meditating on this pandemic moment. But before we get there, I just want to kind of continue with the historical context. So we're talking about the the election of Trump, a certain kind of um, resurgence of uh, white nationalism and a kind of, uh, you could say, quasi fascist or fascistic impulses in American politics, which also, of course, resonates around the world. um, we see all kinds of uh, kind of uh, authoritarian uh, regimes emerging uh, throughout this period. But another thing that happens, which suggests a series of alternatives, is also important. So you know mm-hmm. we've talked about this kind of emergence of a new a new left, a new progressive left, especially in America, but you know also around the world. And part of this is the rise of a kind of new ecological movement and um we this really i would say culminates and it doesn't end but culminates in a, in a in a really poignant way around the same you know 2000 isn't it 2018 around the same time that yeah. that infinity war is released and that's the sunrise movement and and they brought through a series of really well-designed spectacles essentially right they put the green new deal on the map as a a a legible and legitimate debating point talking point so it's such that even the right even fox news had to start making fun of it right they Mm -hmm. couldn't just ignore it which is what they would normally do right um so you have the the rise of a new kind of ecological movement that's putting big big far-sighted infrastructural planning to save the planet into our collective imagination using digital media right their bodies right but also digital media mm-hmm. um we also have the rise of more and more progressive politicians like alexandria ocasio-cortez and rashida talib and ilan omar and others um you know, and and you know, also kind of expanding the bounds of what's possible, what's not only possible to, to critique, but what's possible to to propose, 
and to imagine, right? Uh, and then another major uh, part of this, and this is where kind of the methodology of the course uh, dovetails with the history, uh, the history that we're exploring in the course. There's MMT. Now, MMT is a project that in its, you know, in its form as MMT dates back to the late 90s. But it's really the great financial crisis and increasingly throughout the decade after that puts MMT with the help we might add of the internet and blogs and financial journalism puts all of this abstraction more, yeah more more digital abstraction puts mmt on the map and and this makes money monetary abstraction monetary mediation in its its role in not only the the destruction and the suffering that occurs from events like the great financial crisis and the you know, the weakened and, and uneven and unjust recovery that was the Obama years. It, it, it not only allows us to question um, and critique those problems, but it also expands our imagination about what we, what we can provision. And then, of course, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, you know, had went on the record around the same time <laughs> that uh, Infinity War, uh, you know, um, I, mean, I, don't, I don't remember the exact dates, but like it's all within the same year, right? Um, yeah, yeah. So, so AOC 20, 2018, 2019. Yeah. AOC is coming on record and saying like MMT, we need to be thinking about MMT here and 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 ever since then MMT has exploded in you know, kind of popular consciousness and you know, we haven't seen outright questioning of the structure of money and monetary politics in the United States since probably before the New Deal, right? So this is a huge change right and so i think it's it's important to not just contextualize the the uh kind of the the build up to this first cycle of merrill lynch <laughs> mcu yeah. right um in this moment but also to suggest that this is a moment where alternatives are increasingly becoming available right but we might say they're not necessarily although we could you know, maybe there are alternatives, um, but they're not necessarily becoming available in through Hollywood aesthetics, right? Like Hollywood aesthetics is 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 not only rear guard and repressive, but is in this in a film like Infinity War is like hysterically repressive. Mm -hmm. I mean, melancholically, apologetically, maniacally, hysterically at wit's end. There, you know, is screaming Margaret Thatcher's dictum, there is no alternative. We wish there was. There isn't. Mm -hmm. And, and you know, to be perhaps a bit speculative, um, it's no surprise to me that the moment an alternative really becomes legible that the blockbuster sort of enters its endgame, um, right? In the sense that, I, my sense of the repression is, of course, that it's absolutely still um, possible to keep constructing these rearguard sort of hysterical physic, physics-based aesthetics, but that the more and more we see alternatives play out in political economy, in history, in politics, the less and less purchase this sort of these sort of aesthetic logics will have and you know I, in my essay i sort of 
make uh, make a fun gesture to the sense of the end game being actually the end game of the blockbuster, and not just because of um, not just because of the the fact that it's the end of the MCU, but because of COVID, which I think we're going to talk about in a second. But also, I think what one could posit here is that the the alternatives have come come to come forward, right? And we're in a new sort of phase, politically, economically speaking, where we're faced with a COVID depression and a sort of ongoing real sense that we need government maintenance and care for our population, whether it's health care or unemployment benefits or public employment. And, and, you know, the MCU also sort of by coincidence, but also the coincidence is perhaps the point, um, is over. And we're now sitting in a world where the cinema as a collective enterprise can't quite function in the way that it did to, to sort of satiate that desire for that sort of ritualistic communal um, component of life that you sort of describe the, the blockbuster to be, even in its repressed form. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, I, I actually love that I keep deferring. I keep wanting to defer this. And I'm going to do it again because I think <laughs> this, is a, this is a great moment to talk about the other essay that uh, I've asked the students to take a look mm-hmm. at, um, which um, you're, uh, you're, you're thinking about a Green New Deal and you're thinking as a media studies scholar, right, about media in, in a Green New Deal. And you're also, you're, you're affirming certain things, but you're also going back to the past and you're going back to the New Deal and the kind of ecological components of the New Deal and also the media components of the new deal to learn certain lessons i wonder if you could just unpack a little bit what that argument is about and what 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 those lessons are for you know not just thinking about you know financing and media for a green new deal but also in relationship to this blockbuster kind of crossroads that we're at yeah i mean you know one could talk about this essay i think for quite a bit of time and um there are other places in which I have done that um, in my podcast uh, that Scott is a part of also called Superstructure. But to bracket that uh, for a moment, I think what we learn from looking at New Deal, the New Deal, not only its sort of financial or uh, sort of journalistic or, or uh, entertainment media structures, but also the, the way it's sort of sold to the public as a, as a sort of political economic, um, you know, new deal between the government and the people um, is as one in, in which really that it focuses the sort of private, um, the private structures, the partnership itself. And so we see that, you know, in, in a lot of uh, the rhetoric from, from Franklin Delano Roosevelt and other things. But really, if you actually look under the curtain, um, there's there's a lot of government planning going on and the, the use and spending of, you know, public infinite money to create outcomes that we would think, uh, I think, in, in a lot of ways find as really relevant to some of the problems we have today, such as unemployment, um, in which the government created these vast employment programs, whether they're the WPA or um, the, the Civilian Conservation Corps or, or, or others that put people who are unemployed and starving to work and paid them uh, to build 
all sorts of things, whether it's public housing or to plant trees or to build aqueducts, you name it. And so the CCC, for example, planted billions of trees. Now, it just so happens that trees suck carbon dioxide out of the air. <laughs> and this is a direct, like directly related, related to our problems today of ex- excess carbon being emitted into the air and causing climate change, right? And so... So wait, we don't have to kill people? We can just plant trees? We could just plant trees because we have the material labor available and we have the infinite monetary capacity and we have the seeds to do it, right? And there is, we have the land and the deforested land to do it. Um, And so these are, this is a a sort of ready-made solution for mitigating some of the worst effects of climate change that is just in in this historical moment that we can see. Now, it does, it's not, but importantly, I think the media point that I want to make is it's not just about saying, okay, well, now we just have to figure out how to convince people to do this, right? There's also a specific historical media practice at the heart of the New Deal um, that really centers the, not just the, the journalistic, rhetorical, enter- and entertainment promotion of the government's more materially situated labor enterprises that it was undertaking. And so we're, we're talking about, uh, you know, the, the, the journalistic publications. We're talking about theater enterprises. We're talking about the, we're talking about bands. We're talking about the creation of documentaries and, and also entertainment cinema that all sort of speak to this new deal as a sort of propaganda enterprise. And I don't use propaganda as a, in in a sort of negative sense because what is the blockbuster if not propaganda for material zero-sum <laughs> physics right and so um really thinking about the way governance media really are interwoven and as we've just suggested this sort of merrill lynch funding effort for the mcu proves that right in the sense merrill lynch is a chartered financial institution by the government right and um and sort of sort of I actively call for the integration of the creation of media content within the very structures of the Green New Deal that is also aimed to environmentally create sustainable a sustainable world and that is where one can imagine a sort of counter blockbuster you know activity that that you know cultivates all these studios to create non-zero-sum aesthetic projects that speak to the necessity of public money, but also a public, infinite, relational, abstract aesthetics. And so there's many ways that this could take, but sort of opening up the horizon of media history onto the present, we can see how all of these sort of nodes and decision-making structures and how we produce media today are all contingent upon specific partnership agreements that defer agency to private actors, whether it's in journalism, the likes of Fox News, for example, which sows climate doubt, or to the to the very structures of Hollywood that produced the blockbuster in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and maybe now, finally, we can kind of um, meditate a little bit about this about this uh, coronavirus depression. Uh, and I think I I will say. Um, not only has um, you know 
the kind of climate climate denial impulse been you know transferred and politicized in a particular way mm -hmm. uh, to um in relationship to the virus right a kind of uh, you know a coronavirus denialism right um and that this goes all the way to the you know to the head of state to the to the president of the united states and we can talk about the the botched response we can talk about the um you know the the large but inadequate uh cares act package that came quickly uh and the fact that we've been stalemated in congress ever since and and you know, people are suffering as a consequence but i think you and i would step back and want to frame this in another way which is to say that of course this is a massive undertaking this is an, an incredible challenge uh at multiple very large scales and we wouldn't ever say that ah this is easy you you know you have infinite money it's easy no it's it's of course incredibly hard and and it and, and people are gonna get sick and people are unfortunately you know going to suffer but we can mitigate that and we can take this on in a much more active and creative and contested way if we bring a heterodox monetary and media perspective to this situation. So the, the tragedy, I think, from, a, from the perspective that you and I develop is sort of double, right? It's not just that the Republicans and the Trump administration have caused chaos and catastrophe, um, but it's also that the Democrats um, don't have the kind of imagination that is required to to meet this crisis head on. And, you know, one of the major ways in which I think this uh, got articulated and naturalized from the very beginning was this whole question of uh, the economy and whether we were going to close or open the economy. Where you imagine the economy, again, it's like the market or it's the state of nature. It's somehow out there. And it's, it's sort of, it operates according to its own laws and its own inertia. And you can either close it down or you could open it up again, right? Whereas we, we don't think about the way that that economy is a governance project, that it is absolutely a partial in part creation of government and governance and law and legal mediation. Uh, and, you know, and that includes the prosecuting and locking up of many people, especially people of, of color, uh, to keep them out of participating in that economy and making mm -hmm. it look like there's less unemployed people in the world, right? So there's a whole macro structure here. So in the first place, and then in the second place, you can organize that macro structure in another way. You can, you can make credit available to train people to do contact, contract, sorry, contact tracing, right? Mm -hmm. um, you can train people to um, massively expand food pantries and and their capacity you can right this we could actually have a full employment economy in the midst of this crisis right which might include paying people to stay at home and take care of their kids thank you for doing that right but that's not how we think of it instead it's just it's that the physics of the market are we gonna shut it down or are we gonna allow it to go on its own um, and yeah, I, I, I'm wondering what, you know, what your thoughts are about uh, this particular, this particular moment. 
Yeah, I think there there's a lot to say like within that then like frame framing critique that you've laid out, which is I think the first thing I'd like to say as well is that the CARES Act in a lot of ways totally actually did too well on the, in the eyes of the sort of orthodoxy, mm-hmm. right? It smashed the framing in a lot of ways while being inadequate still that the government was actually able to just in the snap of the fingers, right? To use a, a loaded term when it comes <laughs> to this movies, right? To create all this money, distribute it to businesses and people and have an economy, a quote unquote economy, um, sort of kind of be on pause in a way, right? Still delivering necessary services and actually being that the fact that we've decided we want to do necessary services right now and we're going to pay people to stay home. Um, so there were many ways in which it was a sort of wait a second moment, like, oh, shoot, we just did, we just sort of violated this sort of zero-sum physics idea. Right, that and was- like liberal Obama-type economists had been telling us that because of the, the tax breaks uh, ushered in by the Trump administration that, well, you know, we couldn't afford... Uh, anything big for a long time, right? Because yep. um, because we sort of blew it all on these tax breaks. And yet now we're just, we're spending nearly a trillion dollars, right? On on all of these things, right? And so, um, and so there's that way in which the bubble is kind of burst um, very initially and off the bat. So there's, this is a sort of confusing moment, I think, for everyone, right? And we get these checks in the mail from Trump and um, all of these things, right? With his signature on it. And um, and so since then, there's been a, a real like political, active political project on both sides to try and roll this back, right? Um, we haven't seen any more funding given. We haven't seen any more sort of rejection of orthodoxy since then and i think it's sort of reckoning as we reckon with the ongoing depression we're going to be left with this problem of the only way to actually solve it is to embrace a sort of more heterodox economic approach um and just to date this conversation we're 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 speaking thanksgiving week 2020 right yeah um you know um biden has won the election uh trump has finally um uh, authorized the transition of power and the uh, essentially given the keys, which is basically a bunch of money <laughs> to his incoming administration, uh, uh, to, to the incoming administration to get set up. So that's where we are. Um, you know, we can't predict the future. No, we cannot. But but what we can say, though, is that the I think it's no coincidence, right? Or perhaps it is the coincidence that's important to use that line again that we have the CARES Act, we have the incoming of COVID, which is a quote-unquote natural catastrophe, right? A natural disaster, a pandemic, a, a health-related, a biological disaster that has only enforced the fact that we need the abstract planning capacity of governance, of action at a distance, of mediated representation to coordinate 
a collective response that mitigates suffering at all levels, both economic and health-related. And so it is precisely this sort of problematic that's played out actually in Infinity War, where we have this natural disaster and we need a response. And the response that we need is not one that's offered by the film. It's one that's actually offered by the Green New Deal. Um, and so there's there's something really interesting in the coming together of the bursting of this sort of neoliberal marketization bubble while still trying to sort of plug the leaks on all sides by this sort of ideological orthodoxy and this political orthodoxy. Meanwhile, no one can go to the movies anymore, mm-hmm. right? And we can't go see the blockbusters. They're all being delayed. They're all being released over Netflix, which is a sort of avowed action at a distance, like coordinated capacity where we all participate with our phones in this sort of collective digital um, abstract mediascape. Um, And so we're being flaunted with the sort of breakdown of this consensus, whether it's financial whether it's uh, sort of political economic, whether it's a sort of cinematic, collective, ritualistic experience, um, all around us after the sort of resolution of this Marvel Cinematic Universe. And the question is, where does Disney go from here? Where do, where do politi- the politicians on Capitol Hill go from here, right? Where, how does the future going to look? when all of these things are now newly up for grabs and all of these alternatives are actively being fought for, which is not to say that the alternatives are going to win out, right? It's not just, we're not predicting that necessarily in the future. No, it's a moment where the, the, the paradigm, be it aesthetic, phenomenological, be it political economy, be it um, you know governmental politics and, and presidential elections, everything is very unsettled yeah and and you know i can also speak from then my own personal experience as a cinema goer throughout this pandemic where i've gone to two drive-ins one to see um christopher nolan's tenant which is sort of more in this sort of traditional impact action blockbuster mode and i hated it (laughs) sitting in my car looking at a relatively small screen um in this sort of atomized experience, it was sort of off-putting to me. Now that's just my experience, but I mean, you know, Tenet has not been this sort of collective extravaganza blockbuster moment as as a release of a Star Wars movie would. It sort of came and went. Um, and I've gone, I went to see a premiere of a reality TV show, believe it or not. Um, and you know what? I really enjoyed it. At, mm. at the drive-in and it felt more like this collective experience and phenomenologically it was far far different right it was it was more about characters it was more about the sort of components and, and sort of individual people who were being brought to bear on this sort of collective audience yeah. in this sort of action at a distance way but it wasn't even really much there wasn't action it was more of a human connection that I think we were all we're all striving for Mm-hmm. Um, in this time. And so, which is to say that I think this, this is all up for grabs. And who knows what sort of aesthetics will win out in the sort of collective consciousness. Yeah. But I would be willing to say that 
if unless there's a sort of robust planning or active provisioning of a renewal of blockbuster aesthetics that we're not going to see the same sort of aesthetics be as prevalent as they were before in a pre-COVID world as we would in a post-COVID world. Yeah, there's a Variety article that's actually an, uh, a dialogue between two industry, Hollywood industry journalists um, that I asked the students to read. And I, it's from a couple months ago, and I found it to be really illuminating. Um, and they're kind of, at, at certain moments, they're kind of just dumbfounded by the fact that Hollywood overall is actually not coordinating. It's not actually living up to this moment at all. Now, um, I will say from other experiences I've had in research, you know, kind of tracking this that I've done, that I think locally and like through art cinema theaters and, mm -hmm. and you know, art filmmakers, there's a kind of there's a kind of local or mutual aid thing going on um, where communities, whether it's a you know like a city or it's like a community of filmmakers and and independent you know movie art houses are coming coming together and offering alternatives where you know uh, a release of a independent film uh, is streamed through the independent theater's website and and the they charge and the proceeds go in part to the theater in part to the filmmaker and this is keeping things alive and these are lovely moments right mm -hmm. but these are not the big actors right no. and the what that in that that dialogue and variety suggests is that for the most part you have like a split between the massive entertainment companies and the and the massive um you know investment uh, arms of Hollywood and then you have the studios right and they just can't they have different is they have different interests and they can't get together and they can't come up with something and the the journalists in the in the variety piece are just saying like you know you can do stuff right like you could organize all kinds of outdoor theaters and even though I know there are outdoor theaters and all of this is being touted at, you know as like human resilience and artists and blah 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 and all that's great but that but hollywood is not really doing it mm -hmm. hollywood is not bringing it and coordinating which is an interesting mirror of what's happening kind of you know at, at the level of the federal government the federal government is like no we're basically devolving this to local connections and and immediate responsibilities right and we're we're saying it's not our responsibility and we're not going to support you in this and that's essentially the same thing that hollywood is doing right so there and one of the things that i don't i mean i don't love it but like a, a historical irony as a critic i love it i love that just just this totally betrays the whole the whole neoliberal fantasy about you know private investment and private innovation being somehow nimble and lean and quick and cutting edge and mm -hmm. like that's gonna solve everything right they can't get their shit together and and it's funny like anecdotally living in la i know for a fact that people are trying to shoot right now and you know what like like sets are being closed down after a few days because everyone gets covid and so 
there there are all these like again like as you're suggesting just a lack of reckoning with the the sort of collective monetary structures that we all need to sort of lever as a society to get to the point where we can even begin to produce and screen um not not even just stuff that we filmed before but going into the future like how does how does shooting even look like how do Mm -hmm. we do this if there's a pandemic going on right and there are not easy answers to this because of course the easy answer is to pay people to stay home for periods of months until we can get a vaccine distributed and effective so that we can quote unquote enter a new stage where it's safer to be to to collect to localize contact with people yeah. and produce things and yeah. and it's just this lack of reckoning at all levels that speaks to the repression of the aesthetics of the past however many um years of the neoliberal blockbuster yeah Absolutely. I will mention a couple other, just anecdotally, what seem to be successful models. There's Tyler Perry has his own little studio camp um, where they're shooting a bunch of stuff in a, in a very uh, COVID-conscious and, and careful way, uh, either in Atlanta or around Atlanta. Uh, and then um, uh, the show The Great... British Bake Off, you know, they they yep. quarantined and they've managed to produce a season um, where they, they had one crew member who kind of felt a little weird and they shut everything down and then got him tested and he was fine and they kept going. So th- that was that was a success. Um, so what I want to do now is kind of pivot to just thinking about um, the, the the reflections, the meditations, the the mourning, the the whole kind of process of like reckoning with this this hiatus of the cinema, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, uh, people started saying in film studies and in film criticism and in the in the movie industry, you know, this is the first time you know cinema comes to be in the eighteen nineties. This is the first time in over a hundred years that cinemas have gone dark. Now that might be not entirely true. I think certainly. In times of war, certainly in times of you know the um, the 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 flu, the the pandemic, in you know um, when was it nineteen eighteen or so, yeah. right nineteen nineteen. Uh, certainly, theaters went dark there, um, but nevertheless, like this is a major thing, right? The uh, in the in the past in this course, I've I've likened the the movies to uh, a kind of uh, a kind of spiritual practice, right? And um, and I'd say that the movies have always been this, but I think um, it takes on a new kind of ritualistic significance in the neoliberal period with the rise of the blockbuster that, you know, with Star Wars in particular, uh, the multiplex becomes a kind of church. Right? It becomes a it, it has it has liturgy. It has meanings. It has tropes. It has rituals. You line up. Right. You. You you want to be there for opening night. You go for multiple viewings. Um, you know you buy the soundtrack. You 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 you're a consumer of all the like horizontally integrated merchandise as well. But it's like you know you can critique it for being neoliberal, which it is, and you should. But on the other hand, you know it's it's human meaning making. It's it is a giant ritualistic church like production. And during the pandemic we've basically seen that church closed, right? Um, 
mm-hmm. and 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 lots of interesting reflections that, that um, I've collected over the last you know eight or nine months. Uh, you know, um, on on Reddit, I was reading some threads in like the late spring, and people were talking about, well, oh my gosh, like my whole summer's ruined. I don't even know what to do, and my whole sense of the seasons that are essentially saying, yeah, uh, is messed up because. You know, I, I, I plan my whole summer around the, you know, the lineup of blockbuster releases and my birthday's in the middle. And I know that, you know, we're going to go to this, you know, this film that's going to be released that week. Right. And just it, this real disruption of people's you know sense of self and, you know, spiritual mooring in the world. Um, uh, one of my favorite tweets of this last year uh, uh, by somebody who's no longer on Twitter because I, I saved it and now I can't get back to it but I wrote it down wow I can't wait to go to the movies again and see big big faces uh, and that just speaks to the not just I mean that speaks to cinema in general right um, not just the hyper Newtonian blockbuster but just the, the feeling of being kind of overwhelmed by large faces and a kind of larger than life um mode of representation mm-hmm. um there's a uh another tweet and major thread and and the, the other one went viral and so did this one haha <laughs> went viral um <laughs> uh somebody asked uh what was the last movie you saw in the theater and it produced all of these you know very animated responses right and um and it makes you kind of reckon with like what what was the end for you that you didn't realize at the time and yeah. it kind of reckoning with there's something cheeky about it but it also kind of reckoning with a trauma right like you didn't know that that was going to be the last time right i mean we talk about the last time you saw a loved one or you know a family member before they died and what did you say to them well this is sort of like that for the cinema you know what did you last see um and i can tell you um <laughs> this is you know this makes me feel just awful every time <laughs> every time i I come back to this tweet because the answer for me is Sonic the Hedgehog, which is just <laughs> such a, it, it, it is, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a student, I'm a scholar, I'm endlessly fascinated by the blockbuster, but I'd say some of them are, you know, kind of more high fructose corn syrupy than others, and that one definitely is. Uh, so I'm really saddened by the fact that the last time I was in a cinema, it was... Sonic the Hedgehog as much as I like I appreciate Jim Carrey and his performance so I think I have a better one okay um which is Little Women by um I it's the remake of the uh novel by Louisa May Alcott by Greta Gerwig yeah yeah and and um I believe I saw that in 2019 at the very end um of 2019 and so but yeah thinking about that really does put it into perspective what was lost right by by all of that by all of what's happened and not just in you know human terms but in in ritualistic terms as well um the yeah the new york times critic a.o scott wrote um uh coming off of another sentence he says at the same time our habits of cultural consumption connect us to an atavistic world of ritual, a way of being that money can never account for. So 
he's responding to people in the industry talking about how all this revenue is going to be lost, right? But he's yeah, saying, yeah. but there's something more. There's something spiritual. There's something he says is atavistic. He says, a movie house is like a house of worship. Some congregations insist on silent contemplation, while others favor ecstatic call and response prayer. Yeah, and you know, as as uh, those familiar with your work would say, of course, that there's a there's a sort of proto aesthetic, you know, a sort of prior ground to all of this ritualistic practice, which is, of course, money's collective you know, governance capacity and planning capacity. And so um, thinking with that, it it is, uh, you know, it's a somber place to leave, but I also like to sort of conclude this conversation a little bit with, but I also think looking forward, there's in the sort of falling away of the sort of, you know, neoliberal, blockbuster ritual if one could speculate and perhaps posit that at least at some level there perhaps is an opening for uh, a new sort of collective money forward um social forward non-physics based uh cinematic enterprise on the horizon that is yet to be known yeah here here well i think that's a really good place end this conversation we can always say more but yeah. um i really want to thank you for joining us uh for this uh concluding installment of the the new hollywood blockbuster course such a pleasure and uh i hope the students got something from it it's uh it's always nice when you see yourselves on the other end so as a former student of scott's i can say uh yeah it, it was really exciting and, and a fun conversation
sweaty irons on a scale of slightly strong. To a fluster of surprise, to a flutter of this surprise. Further anticipation is this chaotic wonder, forge its tongue with one loose Thoughtless lust, to a transport of giddy joy, and a whisper of manic hurt, to another hydra.